Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hey guys, how are you? Doing pretty good. Just trying to keep up like everybody else. Just hanging in there. I hear you. I hear you. Um, we don't have Jack this week. He, uh, he wasn't able to make it. Um, so it's just going to be uh, myself, Jason, and Parth. But this has been quite the week, folks. Last week, we briefly talked about some emerging news um, around FTX. Um, and now a week later, it seems, it seems like an eternity's worth of events have happened uh, between then and, and now. And so we're going to spend uh, the duration of the next 30 minutes talking about what happened, what we know, what we don't know, a lot of speculation swirling around. Um, so, you know, before we before we jump into the sequence of events, which I think is the story here, um, I think it would be helpful just to spend a couple of minutes talking about, you know, who the actors are um, in this novella, you know, and what some of that um, that background is. So, Parth, do you mind um, you mind just taking us through that quickly? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I think the story begins with two of these uh, main characters. Uh, CZ and Sam Bankman-Fried, SBF. Uh, Sam was leading um, FTX, and uh, CZ has been the founder, CEO of Binance. And they've obviously been competitors because they're both exchanges. So um, so interestingly enough, Sam started off in crypto as a trader and was originally the founder of a trading firm called Alameda Research. right? And then he went on to build FTX, which is or which was one of the largest exchanges in the world. Um, and Alameda and FTX have had a weird relationship since uh, it was publicly known in the initial days that Alameda trades on FTX, but FTX became more uh, of an institutional exchange later on. And so they claimed to have more boundaries between FTX and Alameda, right? And so it's generally kind of off-putting to have uh, this relationship, a close relationship between an exchange uh, and a trading firm, because that typically means that that trading firm may get some undue advantage over other traders, right? And so, so here's some fun parts of the story. So Binance was an early investor in FTX in 2019. And once FTX became bigger, FTX pretty much bought out Binance's uh, uh, stake, uh, which was over 2 billion US dollars. And so part of that was in these tokens called FTT tokens, right? So which is the native token of FTX. Now, FTT tokens are really, um, really important in this story. So the question is, what is FTT? So FTT is an exchange token, kind of like BNB, where FTX burns a portion of the revenue to buy back FTT tokens, right? And then I think they also have more utility. So if you own a bunch of FTT tokens, you can stake them and you get some trading discounts on the application. Now, one new part of the story is that it turns out Sam was also a huge part of, of being in DC and helping regulators understand crypto. However, recently in the last few weeks, it was 
kind of believed that he was more focused on favoring centralized exchanges compared to DeFi. And CZ believed that Sam was also lobbying against other exchanges. And so that kind of triggered CZ uh, and he decided to liquidate uh, his FTT ownership uh, publicly on Twitter. Uh, so that's just setting some context. But um, Jason, I want to know what's, what happened after because I think this is a really compelling story. Yeah, so it's, it's really interesting. And I'll give you my take on it too, but I just want to uh, make sure we are very explicit about a couple of different things that FTX, the exchange or FTX International, sometimes known as FTX.com, is not a U.S. entity that's based in the Bahamas. There's a separate FTX U.S. entity where U.S. Uh, participants would be able to transact. So that's also another uh, entity within the story, albeit under the FTX umbrella. And I, I did see these tweets from CZ indicating the intent to liquidate some of the FTT or actually all of the FTT tokens that Binance held. And it was very interesting for a, an entity to forecast what they intended to do in terms of trading. So what the motivation I think people speculate has to do with the potentially SIM lobbying for rules that might favor the centralized exchange versus decentralized exchange. We don't really know, uh, it, but it, it is rational to make that connection. But when CZ came out and said, we plan to liquidate these FTT tokens, they were received as part of a buyout from, uh, from FTX. And they said, we intend to do this in an orderly fashion. This may take weeks and, and months. What I found interesting is that there was a quick response, a relatively quick response from the CEO of Alameda, uh, Caroline Ellison, who said, we'll buy them at $22 a token. And so you think, okay, that could have been a, a private deal. Why is this playing out on Twitter? And that was just a, a fascinating next um, next act in this uh, sort of play, if, if you will. Uh, and the, but, the, the fact that this was playing out in a public forum, right? Mm -hmm. And that that offer, if you will, um, you know, was was out in the open for everyone to see, right? I think is is a big part of what catalyzed the events to come, right? Like if that had been made in a private forum, arguably, there's there's a chance that we that we wouldn't be where we are, you know today, right? And, and the events, maybe they would have unfolded over, you know, a more extended period of time, but in seven days, you know, we've seen so much happen, right? Um, and, and it's this, this singular event, right, is really what kind of got things moving. Yeah, so I, I think you're right. So when we last met as a group, we talked about, hey, you know, this is a, a potentially a signal that could be indicating that um, CZ and his team want to disassociate from FTX completely because of that uh, the way that it's playing out in public. And we talked about the fact that um, proof of reserves is really important. And that that was sort of how we ended our last podcast. But you know, so now if we think back uh, a week ago, back to November 7th, we were hearing reassurances from Sam, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, saying all's well, FTX doesn't invest client assets. Uh, and the day seemed like they were, they were managing the communication. But later that evening, there was a big drop-off in the price of the FTT tokens. So you said, okay, well, there's, there's a question of confidence here. Uh, but the following day, you know, not even 24 hours after we recorded the podcast, we learned that customer withdrawals for FTX International had been paused. And then we saw communication about Binance 
having um, completed a letter of intent to acquire FTX International following a due diligence review. And a lot of people initially said on Twitter and other places, oh, is this a joke? But then it turned out that that Sam Bankman-Fried came out on Twitter and verified, yes, they're working to try and address the deal with Binance and that what the Binance deal would do would to uh, would essentially help FTX manage a liquidity crunch. And that was really interesting because you said, okay, this is a non-binding letter of intent. Um, it's a liquidity issue. So as long as assets can be provided, then maybe you can um, just continue operations. And, and frankly, in the back of my mind, I was drawing comparisons to the Lehman Brothers issue. Lehman Brothers had assets, but they lacked liquidity. So when you don't have liquidity, sometimes you have to sell assets in a distressed market, the valuation goes down and it becomes a, a, a negative cycle. So I said, okay, maybe here with an infusion of cash, then FTX, yep, they had a good run, but they're doing what's right for their customers. They're trying to get the funds required to support any type of withdrawals. And lo and behold, what is it? You know, the next morning, uh, we find out that Binance backs out of the deal and says that they've discovered that the, the hole is too big to fill, so to speak, from a balance sheet. Yeah, I, I want to quickly jump in here because I want to talk about two important things and maybe this would add more color to the story. So one question is that CZ publicly stated on what triggered him to liquidate his FTT ownership. And there were two major reasons, right? And this is all um, uh, on his tweets. But one was risk management, because one part of the story which we haven't covered is that there was a leaked balance sheet, which was supposed to be Alameda's balance sheet. And it showed how much illiquid assets Alameda had, right? So a huge part of it was FTT tokens. And that was one part of it. And then the second was CZ uh, publicly said that he believed that FTT wasn't obviously being a friendly exchange and was going behind their backs, right? And so, and that's on the tweet. And so that's why we saw, um, that's why we saw Alameda coming out and saying, hey, uh, we'll buy uh, FTT tokens at $22. But then Binance said that, hey, you know what, we'll just go to open markets. And that tanks the FTT token. Another uh, important part of the story is that um, as soon as Sam Bankman-Fried put out this tweet saying, hey, everything is going to be fine, all assets are, are fine, he goes on to raise money for emergency liquidity, right? And so FTX is now seen raising five to six billion US dollars, and that shows people how big of a hole uh, FTX had, right? And so he obviously couldn't find investors, and this was all happening super quick, like in, within hours. And then Right after that, CZ announced uh, this non-binding binding letter of intent to acquire FTX, uh, pretty much what Jason covered. Uh, but once the once the due diligence was done and once Binance pulled out, things just started looking really, really bad. Yeah, and, and it was reported by by some folks that you know after having gone to different investors in, in, in Silicon Valley investors and others and they when they couldn't raise that capital that's when the Binance deal was done but during the due diligence process um, there was some some questions some of the the FTX staff had quit it, it I've been reading uh, from different sources that some of these um, legal and compliance folks had decided that they were they were leaving and so if you're trying to do due diligence Due diligence around that, that can become a red flag that might have contributed to that the pullback from the original uh, letter of intent. But, you know, we see on that very same uh, Wednesday afternoon, uh, 11-9, the websites for FTX, FTX Ventures and Alameda are all 
not available. And when you're saying, okay, wow, this is interesting. And Bloomberg actually reported that same day that when um, Sam was looking for investors to, to try and help address the liquidity needs, said if they couldn't um, get that liquidity, that bankruptcy filing might be inevitable. And Bloomberg reported that um, the hole could be as, as big as $8 billion, which was larger than anyone had anticipated. And that brings us into Thursday. So literally, they've lived a lifetime in three days. And now Sam tweets out on November 10th. Um, it's an apology saying, I, I'll paraphrase, I screwed up and I should have done better. And then Alameda is winding down. And you know, the Wall Street Journal comes out and reports that FTX had loaned about $10 million to Alameda, uh, citing uh, investor conversations. And I don't think anybody had any, any clue that perhaps there was such a large loan from FTX to the, the, the quant shop, uh, Alameda. But then FTX also same day warned that they could halt trading on FTX US, where the international FTX and the U.S. FTX had been on on different paths up until that point. Yeah, and I I think the the whole idea of who knew what is something that um, is definitely kind of unfolding at a very rapid pace, right? And th there's there's been a lot of speculation around this, but one of the things that we've seen, you know, fairly widely reported is that many of the, even in some cases, higher level FTX employees weren't necessarily in the know around kind of the current state of loans out to Alameda, and that was contained to a fairly limited subset of people. And so I, I think, you know, again, this has um, unfolded so quickly, um, and there's been, I think, a lot of opportunity because there has been, you know, relatively low transparency and lack of communication around what's actually happening. Um, you know, so that's that's kind of left this window for rampant speculation on Twitter, <laughs> primarily. Um, but I think over the coming weeks, um, it will and months and, and presumably years, um, we will have a lot more information around kind of how how this was able to happen without alarm bells being sounded amongst investors in, in FTX, amongst their regulating entities, the auditors that were doing all of the auditing on their financials. It seems like, again, early, early indications, and I'm, I'm sure we'll know more relatively soon, is that a lot of people didn't necessarily know that this was the case, which to me, like the numbers that you're talking about, right, um, that, that's really significant if they truly were able to kind of do this without without anyone really knowing about it. Yeah, that that is that is really concerning. And I think that's why you see reports of employees feeling betrayed. Um, you have a lot of investors, a lot of clients, a lot of business partners who are now in a situation where they're asking what what is the exposure? You know, the trust is already eroded. You know, so now you're moving on to the question saying, okay, well, what, what are the possible remedies? What are the controls that could, broke down or, or could have been in place, maybe weren't in place? But then it takes you forward and say, okay, we're still on Thursday. You know, this stuff is, we're like four days into this. And then you see that, um, it appears that FTX is allowing for withdrawals again after a 48-hour pause. And then, you know, their former head of institutional sales at FTX says, oh, the withdrawals were allowed for funds in the Bahamas to comply with regulators. Well, 
everyone's questioning, scratching their head saying, what? So if you're, a, a, if you're an entity and you happen to be in the Bahamas, are you able to withdraw? And then literally uh, the Securities Commission for the Bahamas publishes a statement two days later on Saturday saying that the regulator didn't require FTX to allow withdrawals or it wasn't accurate. What was reported in these tweets from uh, different folks. And I look at FTX official uh, tweet from November 10th and it says, per our Bahamian HQ's regulation and regulators, we have begun to facilitate withdrawals of Bahamian funds. As such, you may have seen withdrawals processed by FTX recently as we complied with the regulators. Well, that is very concerning because you have a regulator coming out and saying, actually, that's not accurate. Are we on Thursday still or are we, did we move to Friday? <laughs> yeah, no, we're, on, we're on Thursday, but I just want to give one further credit to that, the, the Bahamian regulator. They came out also in that same um, communication saying, the commission further notes that such transactions may be characterized as voidable preferences under the insolvency regime, regime excuse me, and it consequently result in clawing back funds from those Bahamian customers. So you, it's not only was it not accurate, they're indicating, hey, if you were the recipient of a withdrawal, be careful. That might need to be reclaimed. So, yeah, now we now we fast forward to Friday and the news drops across mainstream media around the world. FTX files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in Delaware. Sam, again, tweets out an apology. But one of the things that shocks people is that Delaware bankruptcy filing includes references to something like 130 different entities around the world. It's, it's not just FTX.com slash FTX International or FTX US or Alameda. It's much broader than that. And that brings us to where we are today, <laughs> roughly. Um, I think there's there's still a couple of days worth of events that we saw over this past weekend. Um, you know, and, and Parth, maybe, maybe you can provide a, l- a little bit of context here. It, it sounds like, and again, it's been a little light on on details and official confirmations from from FTX itself, but it, it appears that there was actually over the weekend a fairly large scale hack that occurred. Um, again, the the the. the the details on the breadth of that hack and you know what the actual value at risk or lost was um, is I think still to be confirmed. But um, yeah, anything anything that we're watching there. Um, I think there is a lot of speculation, and again, I, I fully want to say I haven't checked on-chain transactions, but there were news reports about how uh, a few officials or a few people in Bahamas were outsourcing KYC to get users' funds out. And then also there were there were two big hacks, one for $300 million. We don't know if it's a white hat hack, a black hat hack, or uh, if it's something else. But I think we'll know more um, in the coming few days because uh, on-chain data does not lie. Right? Well, so and that's, I think that's the key piece, right? There were large movements um, and subsequent kind of actions taken that would indicate that there was unauthorized access. And I think we, you know, we actually saw the CEO, you know, come out and say, the, the acting CEO come out and say, we're working with law enforcement on this, which again would imply that that was not, you know, uh, sanctioned by the company and part of, you know, whatever activities that they're, that they're now trying to facilitate, um, as well as I think some thread on, was it Twitter, Jason, or Reddit that was pinned that basically indicated that there had been um, a hack and that maybe even using the FTX apps whether it be online or through the phone, that it might be there might be some vulnerabilities present. 
So we know something happened, right? Um, again, it's been it's been really hard to kind of uh, track, you know, what's fact versus what's speculation, um, particularly with this. That um, pinning of the the message was actually done by Ryan Miller, who's the general counselor for FTX, and it was on FTX's uh, support Telegram chat. So. You've got so many different places to try and get information. You've got to ask yourself, what is verified? What is not? It's a fast moving um, situation. And, you know, Miller also came out later uh, to confirm that FTX was involved in moving assets to cold storage wallets uh, and that the process had been expedited due to unauthorized transactions. So, Parth, to your point about looking at on-chain data, and we all know that you can follow the money, literally follow the tokens. You know, it was being reported that ETH tokens, Solana tokens, and Binance Smart Chain tokens were transferred from FTX wallets to decentralized exchanges. And that is not cold storage. So, you know, they, I think that's the unauthorized uh, activity portion that, uh, that both the CEO and the general counsel had referenced in their communications. Yeah. Speaking of on-chain transactions, I quickly want to talk about how much Alameda was involved with DeFi protocols. Uh, and what those contagion effects are. So luckily there was not a lot of exposure from Alameda Research on a bunch of DeFi protocols, but um, the trading firm owed around 7.5 million US dollars to TrueFi, which is a lending protocol. And so their uh, principal payment date is gonna happen in, the, in mid-November or early January. So we'll know how that plays out. And then Alameda also owed close to $6 million on this permission pool on Clearpool, uh, which is a which which is a pool where you have KYC users, and so we'll see how that plays out. But um, interestingly enough, Alameda also borrowed twenty million dollars worth of uh, MIM, which is Magic Internet Money, against a fifty million dollar uh, FTT collateral. Now the good thing is, since it's DeFi and it's written by code, that loan would still be honored, right? And so. Uh, Alameda can simply just not go in and say, hey, you know what, we are bankrupt. We, we, we cannot pay this money because they will have to, especially since it's already been collateralized at a certain value. Um, so uh, all in all, DeFi suffered close to $30 million, which is, I mean, I know it's a lot, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not a, a hugely significant amount, but it just goes on to show how on-chain transactions never lie. But I mean, like even in that case, Parth, like, presumably and again i'm not too familiar with the details of that last loan that you were talking about like the token has collapsed in such a way that the collateral is actually probably not sufficient to back the loan right and so i do agree with you i think you know when we think about codifying the rules of the loan and making sure that you have a you know proper collateral lockup so that it can't be used for other purposes like this whole story kind of underpins the importance of those types of capabilities so that you remove the need for trust, right? In a centralized entity. But I would also note that it's not kind of the silver bullet, if you will, because again, that protocol is likely out money because the token FTT is basically worthless. It's trading at, I, I think, a dollar. Dollar 40 at the moment. I just checked when you brought it up because in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, 
when that loan was taken out against the MIM token, you know, a month ago, FTT token was trading over $26. Right. And here we are under $1.50. I don't think any anyone's risk management, you know, assessment of FTT at the time, right, would have said, okay, it's going to be, you know, uh, it's going to be at a dollar and a half uh, a month from now. If you were in risk management, this is what you would call a tail event. That just happened, right? But I think the point, Parth, and I think this is what I want to see, you know, some of these going forward, like, what do we need to think about? I, I think what you're driving at is something that we've talked about often in that DeFi protocols don't have humans intervening to make decisions. So the code executes as designed. And we saw this with previous uh, market challenges where the code works. And uh, when we think about where the disruption has occurred, it's been with some of these centralized exchanges. And there's a bit of an irony here because Sam Bankman-Fried was going and lobbying in favor of centralized exchanges against DeFi, where DeFi has been performing better. And I say better, I mean as expected, as designed, without intervention throughout the course of past market disruptions. So um, I, I do hope that as we go forward that, that um, stakeholders particularly folks who are involved in risk management, whether it's, you know, financial, regulatory, reputational, whatever, that they do develop a, an appreciation for the effectiveness of those DeFi protocols um, so that we don't have the pendulum swing too far in one direction as a result of um, bad behavior on another part of the market. Yeah. I, I do want to talk about uh, repercussions and follow-ups. And I, I would be interested to know uh, what you guys think. I think one of the, like w one sort of collateral damage was Solana because uh, Alameda Research was an early investor in Solana. And I think if I remember correctly, as of two weeks ago, they held close to 1.1 billion US dollars of Solana. And I think even though I know Solana has an amazing developer community, great protocols, but there might there must be some liquidity crunch in some DeFi protocol out there just because Alameda had $1.1 billion worth of Solana and Nexo, which is another exchange. And they use the same FTX playbook. So they issue a token called uh, Nexo NXS. They retain supply and then they use that in their balance sheet. And so interestingly enough, Nexo also removed close to $500 million in crypto and stable coins in just like nine or eight transactions and then anything that sam touched pretty much so and i know i know we want to talk about this but blockfi celsius voyager um, even these sponsorships like the miami heat stadium or mercedes sponsorships i i just don't know what's going to happen to those uh but i want to i want to know what you guys think about it i mean i my my gut reaction now our sort of work backwards is you talked about some of those other um entities that that looked to FTX for support. You know, so you had lenders like BlockFi, you had the Voyager um, company as well. Those were entities that were able to acquire essentially lines of credit from FTX. So those lines of credit are now gone. So unfortunately, you, these are entities that are now negatively affected because they're relationship with FTX can no longer be viable in terms of providing liquidity for those credit facilities. You know, we, we don't know really about the, the, those entities that will benefit versus lose. I think as an industry, um, the, there's reputational damage that, that comes in. You know, you, you mentioned the, the, the chain Solana. 
We really don't know. Solana, it's important to remember, is in beta. Solana has been working uh, on improving their stability and different things. So it's a lot of great applications that are running there. And it becomes a question of, in my opinion, how does the network operate? We saw a very large amount of Solana tokens were set to unstake last week. Um, and it turns out that that was because a particular uh, staking entity was um, making a move due to their cloud computing provider. The cloud computing provider changed policy, which allowed them to retain and, and continue to stake that soul uh, so that network security is there. But it comes down to, do people want to secure the network? So I, I think we've seen other issues around trust. We look back at Ethereum Classic came about after the DAO hack. People continue to support that chain. So I don't worry so much about the, the chains per se, uh, as long as there's an ecosystem and, and minimum viable um, set of actors who want to build there. Um, but I, I do think that there, there's an opportunity to engage regulators around the globe so that we can educate and that we can have constructive clarity. Many argue that right now, uh, investors are the ones who are negatively affected because we didn't have regulatory clarity. You know, and if we had had it, we might be in a different situation. But again, uh, this, is, this is a situation where it appears uh, that an actor chose to utilize client funds. And some would say, oh, that's not okay. Uh, well, if it was allowed by the terms, it might be. <laughs> you know, so you have to really dig into what were the contracts of different entities. So if you put crypto onto some tool or some platform and you allow that platform to lend your crypto so that you can generate yield, then yeah, that, that's allowed. I don't know the situation here with FTX, but it does come across as, um, in, in my words, I'll, I'll choose it, deceptive because Sam came out and said, we do not uh, touch customer deposit value. And it seems that that was not the case. Yeah. And I've read, I've read that it was actually in the terms of service that they wouldn't do that. Um, so, you know, again, <laughs> hard to, hard to, you know, say anything too definitively, but, you know, I think we have a pretty strong uh, reason to believe that clients were led to believe that they, you know, their, their funds were not being lent out for other purposes or used for other purposes. One thing part that, that you mentioned about, I think some of the folks who come out of this the most challenged perhaps are some of those FTX employees who had their life savings on the platform, who had no idea about what was going on. And you sit there and think like, wow, that that is a very challenging situation to be in. Yeah. And I think like not to, not to end on an overly negative note, but I, I don't think there is any winner here. I think everyone loses, right? I think that every time you see, you every time you have a failure like this, it kind of undermines trust in not only the industry and the ecosystem, but also the technology, even though the technology, like I, I think it's really important not to conflate the two. We've seen obviously pretty tremendous moves in the market since all of this unfolded, right? And people are losing a lot of money across the markets, but you know, Bitcoin's still Bitcoin. There's nothing, you know, nothing's changed there, right? Like the, the same cryptographic primitives hold true today. But I think when you think about kind of public perception, and, you know, I know, Jason, you mentioned Lehman, you know, in the beginning, following the 2008, you know, financial crisis, there wasn't a whole heck of a lot of trust in Wall Street. I think we're, we're fight, the, the crypto industry is in a very similar place right now. And, you know, a lot of, you know, to your point, Jason, a lot of you know, investors, retail investors have lost a lot of money. And I think like building that trust back up 
is going to be paramount to the success of the industry long term and it's probably going to take you know a fair amount of time i think if i had to put a positive spin on it i would say this is probably going to push us and i know we talked a bit about proof of reserves like back to don't trust verify right which is where we started <laughs> and kind of have gotten into this very you know centralized model and i think people have been sounding the alarm bells on this for quite some time you know all the way through the the bull market you know basically saying we're building the legacy financial system um, on top of crypto right and that's going to kind of introduce a lot of the same risks that we had with you know within tradfi and have experienced over the you know over our history um and so like i think that would be the that's the winner is like i think this is, this will be very sobering for a lot of people and hopefully gets us back in a place where products and solutions you know whether they're offered from a centralized entity or not have the ability to users kind of take control right and have the ability to see what's there versus what's not and independently verify and i think that's going to be really important moving forward I quickly want to jump in here. So pretty much close to 60% of the withdrawals from FTX before last week were automatically moved into Binance, right? And so Binance obviously got a bunch of users. I do also want to talk about Coinbase because Coinbase has an interesting position, right? Since one of their competitors just blew up. <laughs> but on the other hand, one of their competitors, Binance, was kind of responsible for triggering this. So I'm sure I'm sure they have a lot to think about. Um, I don't know. I don't know if you want to talk about proof of reserves, but I think that's something which we've been really, which I think we've all been advocating uh, for the last few months or, or years. I think there's consensus kind of across the industry um, that there's there's a great larger need for for let's say cryptographic <laughs> proof of reserves because I think you can you can produce proof of reserves fairly easily. The question is is like what's the ver the veracity of those statements, um, you know? And I think in a situation like this, like Again, you can be led to believe certain things, um, and those things are, in fact, not true, right? So the, the cryptographic piece, I think, is important when we talk about proof of reserves. And, and there's just one, one more thing I want to go back to. So, Parth, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a nuanced game for a moment. I would argue that Binance was not responsible for what happened. You know, I think the communication uh, was effectively using open public town square like communication to forecast activities it did unfortunately lead to questions that then turned out to raise issues well it triggered a sequence of a, a very specific sequence of events that got us to where we are today right and i think there's exactly. so many there's so many variables here it wasn't one thing right the reason why we are where we are is because there was an under collateralized position on on ftx's holdings that's really what why we are where we are right um but you know that didn't just happen right and there was there's a lot of things you know that came together in the perfect storm to 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 produce the situation that we're in that, now that is very well said. And I, I have to tell you guys, I look at this in, through the lens of someone who was actively uh, intimately involved in the industry when Lehman Brothers happened and when Bear Stearns happened before. And what I will just say is coming out of that, you had stronger outcomes, better capitalization for actors in the industry, particularly banks. You had a lot of regulation that helped bring transparency. You know, some would argue too much in, in certain pockets. But I do think that in the end, users of this ecosystem are going to benefit because we will have improved clarity and we were going to have improved um, rules of the road for engagement, if you will. It's a question about what technologies do you build on and which partners do you choose to trust? And there are many, many firms out there that are doing great work. Yeah. Uh, so I, I do believe that the industry will be stronger after some time. Yeah. 
That's a very that's a, that's a very positive, well put, and a, a nice positive note to end on. Um, and with that, I think we'll we'll leave it there for this week. Um, obviously, when we when we when we spoke last week, we had no idea that we were going to be in the position we're in right now. Who knows what's going to happen over the next seven days? Um, all I know is we'll be we'll be diligently um, watching, you know, the the next steps here, and um, look forward to providing an update uh, when we talk next week. So. Um, thanks. Thank you too for your time and for the great discussion. And we'll, we'll talk to you all soon. Have a good one. Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye. Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trade marks appearing herein are the property of the respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2022 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.